Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, Earl Breon here. Before we get into this podcast, I want to take a second to thank the good folks over at C.S. Lewis and Company Publicist uh, for today's guest. Today's guest is Gary Heil, one half of the author team of the book, Choose Love, Not Fear. The other person is his son, Ryan. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. We talk a lot about uh, leadership and love, and I know that Love is a word that is a little uh, off-putting to a lot of folks, especially when it comes to leadership and modern organizations. In light of some recent events, love may sound like something you want to stay away from. But I promise you, we're talking about a very different type of love and a type of love that will improve your leadership, increase the success of yourself and your teams, and put you in a better place to succeed. With that, and without further ado... Here's my interview with Gary Heil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, my guest is Mr. Gary Heil. Gary is one half of the author team of the book, Choose Love, Not Fear, How the Best Leaders Build Cultures of Engagement and Innovation that Unleash Human Potential. He is also a Coast Guard veteran, an internationally acclaimed expert in the field of leadership, management, and organizational culture, whose work has helped some of the most prominent leaders and companies in the world, including former presidents of the United States, Fortune 100 companies, and professional sports coaches, become more innovative and culturally vital. Now, I mentioned he's one half of uh, authorship team of the book. The other half is his son, Dr. Ryan Heil, who's not with us today. But Gary, thank you for uh, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be an outstanding uh, conversation just based off of our pre-show work up here. But I'm going to start you out where I start all my guests. What does the phrase "burden of command" mean to you? It's it's, it's a phrase I haven't heard since my military days, a long, long time ago. But burden of command has a special kind of meaning to me, burden meaning responsibility to me. So I think leadership is less position and far more responsibility, especially responsibility to those who depend on us to lead. So as we have been given a responsibility to lead a group, I think leaders have that responsibility, whether it's a a platoon commander, you know, saving lives, or whether it's a, a organizational for-profit 
CEO making money and creating a viable machine that creates employment and feeds stockholders, or whether it's just leading to create a culture at different parts of an organization. It's, it's important to note that leaders create 70% of the culture of an organization by the where they spend their time, the stories they create, the example they set. So leaders have an outsized effect on our lives in a thousand different ways. And I tend to think of it more as a responsibility and a love than a burden, but it is definitely something that affects the lives of others. Outstanding. No, I love that. And I love your approach and, and your philosophy to, uh, to leadership because um, you, you throw around a word that I'm sure if your experiences are like mine, because I use this word a lot too, uh, that, that makes leaders and, and maybe even teens in general a little uncomfortable at first. And that word is love. Yeah, um, we didn't start out to write a book called Choose Love, but we couldn't help ourselves when we did the research. Um, love comes in a way as the opposite of fear, because it's hard to be both loving and fear creating at the same time. But what we did is we went into companies and organizations and schools and universities, and we were interviewing leaders. And most of the time when we looked at leaders, they were some good leaders, but they were somewhat interchangeable except for a few. I mean, there were some poor leaders, some good leaders, but the few great leaders we met, when we were with their teams, they were different, really different. And what was most striking about them when you first meet them is the relationship they have with their team and the relationships that the people on the team have with each other. Now, I wouldn't say that they all called it love, but it was something more than caring it was certainly they wishing well for each other and having each other's backs. But I, we were surprised by how many people called it love. A long time ago, uh, a guy named Jan Carlson, a mentor of mine, ran an airline in Europe called SAS, Scandinavian Air Service. And he said the first choice every leader needs to make is to choose love or choose fear because you can't choose both. And the kind of company you cre create is fundamentally different depending upon your choice. Mm. We thought we got it then, but we really didn't get it. It took a crazy football coach in Clemson, South Carolina, who ran around going, we're going to win because we love each other, to mm. get our attention. And then it was Alan Mulally, the CEO turned Ford around, who says, you got to love them up before you coach them up. Mm -hmm. And Bob Lasseter, the football coach at De La Salle football in California that didn't lose a game for 12 years, and these guys were using the word love to describe how they felt about their team and how their team felt about each other. Not everybody used the word love, but we were surprised by how many did. But the one thing that was unmistakable was the relationships they had on the team were fundamentally different than most every organization we met. I, and, and that makes perfect sense to me because... You know, again, being a, a former active duty Marine, and I've actually shared this in the past probably three or four podcasts, so my listeners uh, might either think I've, I've scripted this in the show at this point or are getting tired of hearing of it, but one of the best pieces of leadership advice I had when I was in the Marines, uh, I had a senior enlisted uh, uh, NCO tell me, you know, the, the trick to being a great leader in the Marine Corps is you have to be willing to put your team in harm's way to get the mission done 
but you have to love them enough to where the idea of doing it rips your heart out. And well, I, I hadn't were, heard I hadn't heard it like that before, but that's that's really true. It's it's you know, and what's really interesting is the the cumulative effect that love has. I mean, when you choose love and not fear, then love begets more love. The more we care about each other, the more we need that, the more positive emotion we need. I think we would be quite surprised by taking a clear-eyed view of how much we rely on fear in most organizations, be they higher education or the third grade classroom or a nonprofit or, or a for-profit organization. I think we just don't realize how much we rely on fear to control people's behavior. Yeah, no, it's 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 tragic. I mean, it, it really is tragic because, you know, I mean, love is, it, it love is, it, it's a lot easier to put to use, right? I mean, it's not, um, it, it's not super easy, but it is easier to love somebody than try to control them by fear. You know, I, I would say so, but it's also more vulnerability creating. Right. It's, and in today's world where people are rewarded for busyness and burnout and always having the answer, and while we still have performance management systems that punish you for mistakes, or if sometimes we use fear in ways that are not even in, intended to create fear. For instance, kids today fear not getting an A in a class for fear that it might affect their ability to go to college. Mm -hmm. The fear that's created in the name of grades, in the name of performance rankings, are not intended by the person to say, look, I want to make you fearful. Fear is just a natural consequence of what we've created because of what we assume about people and I guess how they're motivated. But fear is fear is such an easy thing. I When we wrote Choose Love, Not Fear, um, my son, who is the co-author, Ryan, who is much smarter than I am, he, he, he had this argument with me and he wins. We were writing a chapter on motivation, something I'd spend a long time looking at throughout my career. And he wanted to start it off with the silliest story in the history of mankind. <laughs> he thought that we should start it off with the age-old motivational problem with how do you get your kids to eat vegetables specifically broccoli. And okay. I thought, Ryan, in the middle of a book like this, come on. I must tell you, in retrospect, he was right, I was wrong. We do it with our kids. We don't mean to create fear of vegetables, but we say to them all the time, if you don't eat your broccoli, what? If you do eat your broccoli, you can go out and play. You can play a video game. You can get dessert. As Ryan reminded me, we don't bribe kids with free desserts for eating free desserts. It's only for things that are distasteful. And we, we, we use fear to get our kids to eat vegetables without ever calling it fear. Right. And sometimes this use of fear is so implicit in what we do and how we lead that we no longer see it that way. That's when it becomes a problem. When we so accept something as true, like using incentives to get something, that we no longer question the kind of fear it creates to get it done. Hmm. That's that is a very interesting perspective, and and uh, I, I can see how it you know is becoming ingrained in our culture because you know when I mean, there's there's mountains of research that show how uh, how negative oriented uh, human beings are you know and I'm sure you mentioned the 
uh, you know, kids, but you've probably seen the, uh, the study, I don't know, it was probably about 10 or 15 years ago, I think it was Harvard, where they sent the, the report cards to the parents, and it was like all A's and B's, and then one uh, D or F, and all the parents focused on was the D or the F. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you get uh, an organization to stop? So if I'm hearing you right, it's not necessarily stop focusing on the mistakes and the failure because you really, you've got to pay attention to those and, and make improvements, but not be the centerpiece, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, it's not the mistake that kills us. It's the way we react to the mistake. Uh, right. I like Nancy, Nancy Kane's uh, re, re, phrasing. She says that mistakes are classrooms. Problems mm-hmm. are classrooms. They're learning opportunities, right? And so... If I didn't have to worry about the grade to get into school, then I would make a mistake and I learn more from my mistakes than I learn from from my successes. So every learning would be a mindful recognition that I need to think differently or I need to lead differently or I need to perform differently. It isn't the mistake. The mistakes are wonderful. I go out and I play a sport and I make a mistake. I learn I don't make the same mistake again. The problem comes if I look at that mistake as avoidable, or I punish people for it, or I demote them for it, or I get less playing time for it, or I get a D that I can never recover from in school, then that mistake becomes career limiting or education limiting or opportunity limiting. There's the problem. So it's never the mistake or the measurement of the mistake. It's almost always the way we react to that. Well, speaking of that, you know, one of the things that I've ran into in my work with leaders is, uh, you know, when you get to that position of leadership where you have people following you and you look up, uh, they look up to you as as the person to to guide the way and show the way, uh, you know, the, the ego kind of tends to kick in a little bit. When you do make mistakes, it's kind of hard to admit that you aren't this all-knowing, all-powerful being called a leader. So how do you get leaders okay with making mistakes and kind of, as you mentioned, building that culture where mistakes are acceptable? Well, doesn't it, first it has to happen cognitively, I think. When, today we have to start to realize that you can't have all the answers to problems you've never encountered before. It might mm-hmm. have been okay in the past as a leader to think you have all the answers, but today you can't possibly have all the answers because the problems are divergent. The problems have never existed before, you know? So therefore, I think the leader is all-knowing is the first thing we have to react to and realize that we can't have all the answers, we can't be the smartest person in the room, or we can't survive in a world where innovation is the most valuable currency. And so once I come to the realization, then I am more willing to to support people and put them on the team that are smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of vulnerability is the first step to realizing that I'm supposed to grade all these people, and I'm I'm not as smart as they are, and they know more about their job than we do. I love it. I love it. So now you you kind of alluded to him uh, a little bit ago, but uh, the forward to your book is uh, uh, written by by Dabo Sweeney. Um, how how did that uh, come about, and and how did he get to write the forward of the book? Um, well. Dabo is is somebody both Ryan and I admire greatly. Mm-hmm. He is the most positive, most loving person almost 
I've met in a long time. And we were lucky that he um, would write the foreword for us. He is, um, when my son got his PhD from Clemson, um, Ryan and Dabo were friends. They coached baseball together. They did different things. And I met Dabo through Ryan. And I grew to admire who he is as a person uh, through the last eight or 10 years of getting him to know him. And when we asked him if he would do the forward for us, he graciously, um, graciously wrote it for us. And he had become a, a really good friend of Ryan's and a friend of mine, and he's somebody I admire greatly. And and he 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 kind of is a, a champion of the message, right? You love the team, love the team. We're going to win because we love each other. Uh, I, I like that. Um, and, and so, you know, he was just kind of a natural fit, I presume, right? Yeah, he really is. I mean, he nobody look. None of us are perfect, and but he's an amazing amazing leader. And I think the great signs of great leadership are always found in the followers. If you go to a Clemson practice, or if you go interview the people on his team, you will see people who love each other, who treat each other differently, who support each other in ways that I had never seen before. You see people fly back on their own dollar to for a football game just to see the coach. He is, he's, I think, Anybody who spent time around him, he makes all of us better just to see his example. He's, he's really quite the positive character that is like the loving kind of person who makes you better. And, and by loving, I don't mean to make it sound soft because there's nothing about that guy that's soft about standards. Right. His thing is the best is the standard, and he demands more from people than people realize. So, yeah, he, he loves them, but he loves them to the point where he won't accept anything but their best. And I feel like he's helped me question some things I thought about leadership, so I thank him for that. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's an outstanding uh, point of view because, you know, I mean, here we're talking. You know, I'm former active duty Marine. You're former active duty Coast Guard. Uh, you live in a Navy SEAL uh, country. Uh, we're talking about a, a football coach here who believes in the philosophy of love. Uh, you know, this isn't a kumbaya, touchy-feely uh, type of concept, right? This is, you know, because this is something I run into when, when we talk about love. Because, uh, you know, my my partner and I, uh, he's a Army veteran. Uh, we, we kind of had taken the, the core leadership uh, principles that we were taught in the military, and we talk about one uh, one of our shields of the leadership failings that we talk about is build relationships and look out for your people. And when we talk about that, we talk about you have to love your team, and we get some of those looks, and, and we say the same thing. It's like, look, this isn't a touchy-feely concept. We may look like a couple of fluffy guys up here, but we're not fluffy. You need to love your team for success. These are the th- things that successful teams do, Right. Yeah, it's basically every team's human, right. and we all want to be cared for. And love is the basic positive emotion. And so what people think is fuzzy and soft is anything but that. So if you were to ask the question differently and you were to say, hey, will an athlete do better if they're full of positive emotion or full of fear? Mm-hmm. That's an easy question. They're going to say, no. 
when you're full of fear, you don't play well. Nobody plays well scared to death. Right. Nobody does anything. Fear makes you stupid. Fear makes you dumber. Yep. So everybody picks a positive emotion over fear. But when you say, as a leader, should you choose love or should you choose incentives, which create fear, most of them choose incentives because their theory of motivation that they've learned almost on autopilot is the manipulation of rewards and punishments to get what they want. We, we don't call it manipulation. We call it incentives. But it creates fear, fear that I won't get the reward, fear that I won't get my fair share, fear that you know, I won't make President's Club, fear that I won't get an A, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't see anybody who plays any game well or performs well scared to death. You know, and some fear is natural. As a Marine, when you're walking up a hill in, in the Middle East, I think fear is a, a good thing sometimes to keep you alive. But when you get too fearful, so fearful you can't act and can't think, nothing good happens, I would think. Oh, I mean, you're 100%. I mean, that's how we, we define courage. You know, it's courage isn't an absence of fear. That's stupidity. Courage is being afraid, coming to grips with it, and can, continuing to push forward in the face of that fear. And yeah, you know, you know who's, who's uh, phrasing of that I really like? I like that phrasing you have. But I also, Mandela is created with a phrasing that I carry with me about that. He says, courage isn't the absence of fear, as you said. He said, courage is the realization that something's more important than your fear. Mm. And so when you're walking up, it might be protecting your fellow Marines. It could be that what we're trying to accomplish is more important. It could be what your team's trying to do is more important. So there's fear in change, you know, but people change when they believe that what they're trying to do is more important than their fear. And for leaders, that's really important because most of what we're talking about today is how most leaders should transform a little bit the way they lead to build cultures that fundamentally support different behaviors. And leaders are going to go, but if I do that, I might not get the same performance marks. My boss may not like me, right? Mm -hmm. And what could be more important than unleashing the potential of the people on the team? But you have to believe that that's fundamental to how you define success. Well, well, 100%. I mean, you mentioned earlier uh, De La Salle, and, and I don't know how many people are familiar with them, but, uh, you know, probably the, the crash course was uh, the movie that was made a few years ago called When the Game Stands Tall. And, and in the movie, they do a really great job of focusing on this, um, I think you call them promise cards, that, that each one of the players had to write up before the season. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it was, is they weren't promise cards to him. They were promise cards to each other that they were going mm-hmm. to hold each other accountable to. And, and I thought that was great. It is. It's brilliant. When Bob Lasseter told me about it, and I think they're called accountability cards. That might be it, yeah. Yeah, and, but it is a promise that they make to each other. So every night before the game, usually that would be a Thursday night in high school football, that each player would have to stand up and write, I think it's, what are you going to do that you've never done in the game tomorrow? What are you going to you know, learn? What are you going to do next week to become better kind of thing? And they would have to stand up and promise to each other. And then it would be the other player who would hold them accountable. Sort of they, they look at accountability not as a management activity, but as a mutual promise to each other to give their best. I saw this you know, one day at a, at a football practice. Um, it was not at De La Salle. 
Um, and what I saw, it was actually at a Clemson practice. And I saw, you know, when I saw a skirmish during just an internal practice where an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman kind of were pushing after the whistle with each other a little bit and got a little heated. And I was looking at this going, whoa, they're a little out of control. And before I could even look to the bench, right, to see what the coach was going to do, two of the linemen, one on the offensive side, one on the defensive side, grabbed the offending parties, who were both young. And I could hear him yell at him, get off the field right now. We don't do that here. That's not the way we play here. Mm. We do not act like that with each other. That's not the way we do it. Get off my field right now. Before the coach could speak up, the players, more senior players, sent those two guys packing off the field immediately because it broke the norms of the team and the way they care about each other and the way they play. About five plays later, both these players came running back on the field. And the people who were yelling at him and sent him off the field were the first people to hug him, tell him it was okay, told him they loved him, and they were back at practice. Mm. But the, the enforcement of the values, a coach did not have to say a word. The players did it for each other in a way that showed there was mutual accountability among members of the team in the culture, and that who they were as a team was unmistakable, not just to the coaches, but to the players. I found that to be very different. I just sat there shaking my head going, this is what it looks like when it's well done. So, so you're telling me that an organization can operate in some fashion or other where when somebody messes up, everybody's running around, uh, telling stories behind their back, creating gossip, and trying to get them in trouble so they can have their job? <laughs> no, I think that what I'm saying just the opposite, right? right. I think that uh, you you probably saw it in the Marine Corps. I saw it when I was the head of the Coast Guard Leadership Program years ago. I saw it on motor surfboats off the Columbia Bar, where people held each other accountable for making good decisions. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily all leaders on that boat in an emergency when you're going over the Columbia Bar and the and the boat's doing three sixties in the surf. There isn't much who's the boss. There's every person's a leader and every person takes responsibility to helping the other person survive. Mm-hmm. I saw it with Pacific Gas and Electric Company when I used to work in Northern California up there with them in, a, in storms with linemen hanging off of poles, getting electricity reinstated so houses could get it back. Right. When they did that in emergencies, their safety records in the worst of weathers actually got better. You know, you in emergencies... I saw it in helicopter pilots and search and rescue missions. When you find an emergency or in a crisis, safety records get better. People hold each other accountable. Doesn't matter who the leader is. There isn't, there isn't time for politics. Everybody's focused on the cause. I think the problems come when it's a less than an emergency and politics become more important than the cause, then it's a problem. Mm. Well, and I will tell you this, uh, you know, as a Marine, uh, we, we love to give each uh, service a, a little bit of grief, but uh, I want to take an opportunity because you mentioned somebody there that, that is an outstanding group of individuals. And when, when things are going south quick, there's no more beautiful sight on the face of the planet than a Coast Guard search and rescue helicopter. I can promise you that. Those folks are top-notch individuals. And, uh, you know, what you say right there, 
it doesn't surprise me in the least bit because, uh, you know, I mean, like you said, it's it's this, um, you know, I don't know what y'all call them in the Coast, Bar- in the Coast Guard, but in the Marines, we, we, we continually talked about uh, these crucible moments, you know, these things that would happen in your life that would test you to the limits. And you either melted away and just become a piece of slag metal or you were hardened on the other side and improved. And, and, and folks like that, uh, you know, they, they are in those crucibles over and over and over again. And, and there are some top-notch people because of that. So, so I love what you just said there. That was great. Well, I, I actually think that uh, uh, my colleague Nancy Kane at Harvard uh, wrote a really brilliant book called Forged in Crisis. And mm-hmm. she studies five interesting leaders from Abraham Lincoln to Ernest Shackleton and others about how they developed as leaders because of the hardships they faced and the crises they were thrown in. And all, all, many of them wanted to quit along the way. But it, it is the crisis. It is the learning. Leaders are not born. They're all made. Mm-hmm. When I wrote a book with Warren Bennis years ago, Warren used to say, you know, people, leaders evolve by facing the tough things in life and finding a way through them. All the best leaders evolve. Nobody was born with the leadership gene. You know, it's just not the way it is. And we don't have, we don't really have a choice sometimes with all the crises we face. We only have a choice as to how we react to them. Right. And I think the best among us react positively and lovingly, and we, we refuse to react in ways that destroy relationships and that don't expect the best in people. I don't know how you feel about it, and you talk to a lot of people on your on your podcast, but it seems to me that in far too many cases in organizations in non-crisis situations, we expect too little. Mm-hmm. We're, it seems to me that in the name of some softer, gentler leadership, we accept mediocrity far too readily. I think the one interesting thing about the Alan Mullally's and the Dabo Sweeney's and the Bill Campbell, who was the CEO of Intuit, the late Bill Campbell, they had no tolerance for mediocrity. Mm-hmm. None. Zero. They expected the best. And if you didn't get the best, as Bill Campbell would say, you have a right to be treated with respect. You have no right to work here. Right? right. They, they don't accept mediocrity. Dabo Sweeney's the best is the standard. You just don't accept mediocrity if you're one of those leaders. But you can be very loving to somebody and ask them to go work somewhere else. A hundred percent. And what, what I like about Dabo's, the, the, the best uh, is the standard. And this is something, because I love what you just said, this is something, uh, you know, conversation I've had many, many times is, you know, I, I like to get leaders to understand the standard is simply the bare minimum you're willing to expect. And by setting the best as the bare minimum, you're expecting a lot out of your people. And that's a great challenge. People love a challenge. Uh, we, we talk a lot about employee engagement these days, right? I think what you just said is the key factor. Employee engagement is low because we don't challenge the people who work for us. They get bored. Well, I think I think we don't, or we do challenge them in ways that are don't have a cause or, or, or have meaning. True. You know, burnout 
and and people getting turned off or lack of engagement. I mean, when people say engagement, I think the first question we ought to go is engaged at what? So I'll take the simplest example. I said to a teacher, and basically a professor in a university recently, there's a lot of research that shows that grades, the fact that you're manipulating with grades, inhibits learning. It gets them to focus more on the grades and less on the learning. And he said to me, was it he in this case? He said to me, but if I didn't have grades, they'd never come to class. And I said, well, is that like they don't care about learning? He says, no. And I, and I thought, is it they don't care about learning? Or is this class so boring that I would be bored and not want to come to class either? <laughs> the assumption many times is the job is the job, and I have to hire people who will like the job. But it could be that we've designed the job or lead the job or um, the kind of leader that makes the job not worth being engaged in. Exactly. And, you know, I went to his class one day and I went, well, I could see why they're not engaged. I mean, my Lord, it's memorization, it's craziness. The teacher was kind of burned out. It wasn't very interestingly presented, right? Um, I, I wonder if we expect so little from ourselves as leaders, too, that we don't realize as leaders we're in the opportunity business. Mm -hmm. We're not in the motivation business. I can't motivate you. As, as McGregor said 70 years ago, the most I can do is create a really cool opportunity and go try to hire people who are interested in this to come play on my team. So I think what the best do is they create an opportunity and it's never for everybody. Bruce Nordstrom of the Nordstrom family told me years ago that part of their whole reason they could survive is they knew that Nordstrom wasn't for everybody. You had to have a certain kind of person that wanted to work there. I think the same is true for everything. If I create a compelling opportunity for people, I'm going to hire the kind of people that want to play in that kind of game. Mm -hmm. And that's not everybody. There are jobs where I think I'd be pretty good at them. And there are other jobs that would provide great meaning to somebody else who I would be bored to death in. Right? Right. And yeah. knowing the difference, I think leaders are in the opportunity business. And I wonder how many compelling opportunities leaders create where people can find meaning in their lives by participating in the opportunity. Well, you know, and, and, and I love that. And it runs, you know, I, I, it runs quite a bit deeper than that, too, I, I believe, because you're, you're right. And, and I think you're 100% right with that leaders don't realize that because there's a very interesting, you talk about schools and grades. There's a very interesting piece of research that was conducted by Harvard a few years back where they went to a school, and at the beginning of the school year, they took a class, and they administered a IQ test to the entire class, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they got the results back, and they identified, using the test results, they identified a group of students that had showed, and this is the story that they told the teachers, that had showed, based on research that they had conducted before, that these students were going to experience a spike in their IQ mm -hmm. growth over the school year. Mm -hmm. School year goes through, the Harvard group comes back and retests the kids, and sure enough, those kids that they identified as having the IQ spike experienced an IQ spike. Now, some of the other kids did too, but the people that they in introduced or uh, identified, almost all of them actually experienced a spike. And so the teachers are like, wow, that's a really great test. And then the Harvard folks uh, dropped the shoe. We picked those students at random. 
The only reason they grew was because you believed they would and you gave them opportunities and challenged them to grow. That's right. It, it, the, the principal's name was Lenore Jackson mm -hmm. and the professor's name was Bob Rosenthal. And when the, it was 1971. Right. And, and it was done in the South San Francisco school system. And he gave him, like you said, he gave him, they gave him a test that wasn't anything. They gave him a bubblegum test right. that, that didn't mean anything and, and then lied to the school teachers. And, and the kids learned faster because the only variable left with those that they identified were that the teachers treated them differently. And, you know, the really interesting soliloquy to that, to that example you gave, which is a, you know, which he wrote the Pygmalion Effect, a book based on that was what Rosenthal did before that, uh, that you may not be aware of, is before he went out to South San Francisco, to, to the South San Francisco school system, he did, a, he did an experiment at Harvard using rats. And what he did was he gave a group of students what he called maze smart rats. So he told one set of, you could only do this at Harvard because they're the only people who believe that they're smart rats. <laughs> so, so he gave half the class smart rats Maze smart rats, he called them. And then there were maze dull rats, dumb rats, to the other half of the class. And he told the smart kids, hey, treat these rats well, because when they run the Skinner box, they can run faster. And I need smart rats, so do your best you can, because those are the smart rats. And to the other ones, he said, you know, you have the dumb rats, do the best you can. And they ran the maze like psych students run the maze. And as you know, the only kind of rats you really have are dumb rats. There are no such things as smart rats. <laughs> so the, what was interesting was the students that found they ha thought they had smart rats actually had them, had them run the maze faster. Now, I could understand with Lenar, Lenore Jackson in, in the example you gave how you tell a kid that they're smart, right? You right. give them more homework. You give them more testing assignments. You give them more feedback. But how do you tell a rat? that they're smart. And, and, and yet, even dumb rats with students who thought they were smart ran faster because somehow or another we communicate with our nonverbals or some way a set of expectations that even rats get. So my, my thing about the Pygmalion effect is if, if rats can tell you think they're smart or you think they're dumb, then no matter who your team is, they can tell before you even speak a word what you think of them. And so I think Rosenthal's study that you quote is really, really interesting. And if you go back and read the one about the rats, you're going to sit there and go, why don't we expect more? Why yeah. aren't our expectations high all the time? Rats get it. Well, I mean, that's exactly right. It's like if we expected, and, and I think that's what I was trying to say at the very beginning of this uh, part of the conversation is, if we expected that level, I mean, look at that again. We'll go back to Dabo at, at Clemson. Like Clemson's always had a decent to, to to fair football team, but what he's been able to do by expecting that that level of of production and 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 output from the team has taken him from middle of the pack to uh, you know championship winning team, and and it's just that I think leaders severely undervalue the value their opinions of the people that work for them and their abilities has on the people that work for them and their abilities. Yeah, and not to make our conversation too much about Dabo. Right. <laughs> I, I, think, I think there is one thing that uh, most people really don't realize, and that is, I think, what 
I don't want to speak for him, what he might be as proud of as anything. For the last decade, Clemson has been in the top 10 largely every year. May not be every year, but mostly every year. In the top 10 of academic performance of football players. Right. I think Dabo's had like three people who haven't graduated. His APR is among, right after Wisconsin and Stanford, in terms of what he's been able to do with the amount of investment he makes in the academic performance of football players. And I asked him one day, you know, you know, something about a football player. And he said, talk to me when they're 35 and I see where they are in life. He said, you know, I want to, he likes to win. He said, the joy is in the winning. But he said, winning for him, as he defines it, has a lot more to do with the education of young men to become successful in society than it does just football games. And it was on that evening that he told me that I went from fan to super fan of what he's doing because it really is the essence of what a what a scholar athlete ought to be student athlete no i again uh, i hate to beat it to death with some of the sports stories but uh one of the one of my favorite moments uh, was it was the lead up to bill parcells uh being inducted into the nfl hall of fame and uh you know the uh, leading up to the week uh, they do a lot of interviews, and somebody asked him, said, what was your biggest failure as a coach? And without hesitation, without blinking, he looks at me and goes, Lawrence Taylor. Mm. And they look at me and say, what? Lawrence Taylor's in the Hall of Fame. You, you did a lot of good stuff with him. How is he your biggest failure? He goes, I didn't take my job as helping him grow as a man as seriously as I took my job as helping him grow as a football player, and I've regretted it ever since. And I really, really, really believe that the world we live in, in which shareholder value and school test results and numbers of wins matter more than anything else, I think we have missed the point that it's not just whether you... Remember, remember your parents tell you it's not just whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game? Right. I think most culture to this today are... It's how you win the game, not how you play the game, too often. And I do believe that it matters how you play the game. And at the end of the day, the fact is we need to realize is that when we play the game better, when we lead people to be healthier and more fulfilled and more meaning-seeking people, they'll be more creative and they'll accomplish more. And we have really come to the end of what's possible by using incentives to manipulate performance. And the next decades ahead of us are going to be about leaders trying to find ways to thoroughly engage a person's whole being, which will mean we'll have to really treat the whole human being, not just the one that works, which I think will lead to us to start to think that Ariana Huffington and others have it right when they talk about if we are healthy enough to thrive, we will be better leaders and better people. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Listeners, we're, we're speaking with Gary Heil, uh, co-author of Choose Love, Not Fear. It's an excellent book. I highly suggest that uh, you pick up a copy. Um, now, what we've been talking about here ties really good into uh, chapter three of your book. 
And it's titled, Get the Right People on the Team and the Wrong People Off. I think a lot of leaders really inherently understand the importance of getting the right people on the team, but for various reasons are either hesitant or uh, maybe just don't know how to get the wrong people off. So how do you identify the wrong people and how do you get them off your team? Well, I think, how do I identify? I think it's not much of a problem identifying the people who are not performing on your team. In my experience, we almost always know who they are. Mm-hmm. In most cases, if the only people we left on the team were people that didn't stick out like a sore thumb as being not carrying their weight, it wouldn't be such a problem. Um, I, I, I would say this. I think the most important people to get off the team that aren't playing are leaders. I don't know why we tolerate bad leaders, but we do. Mm-hmm. People come to work wanting to make a difference, but they leave. Number one reason people leave companies, leave organizations, is bad leadership. Yep. It's always been the number one reason for the last 30 years. And we know who they are. If you go into a company and you say to somebody working on the front line, what's leadership like here? They'll point out three good leaders and they'll point out three awful leaders. Or you go in and you tell a negative leadership story to somebody. What they, hear, what they tell you is, you think that's bad, you should see my boss. And they have a worse leadership story, right? Right, sadly. But we don't hold leaders accountable. We often promote them. Mm-hmm. We say people are the most important asset in the company or you know, we should love our people or however you want to put that. And then we promote the technical expert who kills people. Yes. And we know they do that. And they say, well, they'll get better. or We'll get them a coach. or we'll... The truth is, that's why we have turnover. It's, it's, it's fundamentally awful. Now, I understand it. It's hard sometimes, especially when they've been promoted to a level where they become important to your business. In small businesses, often the case these days is the person who helped us become successful in the past is now a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. I know in a lot of small businesses that were really successful where the person who helped create the business and its success, that person is now the biggest impediment to moving to the future. But we just want to seem loyal. But being loyal to a bad leader is being disloyal to the people they lead. Everybody deserves better leadership. And we need to get better at that. And I don't think, if you ask the front line, just have a conversation with them. They'll tell you who's not carrying their weight. They'll tell you who's not accountable. They'll tell you who's undermining performance. They'll tell you which leaders are making their job difficult. I think the problem is not in identification. I think the problem is in the courage to do something about it. When you want to feel like you're not being a bad person, when you feel like you want to give everybody a chance forever, but I think when it comes to leaders especially, I think we don't have a great track record with people turning around if they don't turn around pretty quickly. And if I give this one last piece of advice, if you're going to take a project, and I think at most a leader should have no more than one project on their management team, then I would ask, is the problem with the person who's underperforming a competency problem or an attitude problem? If it's a competency problem and they're trying hard, 
I think I would bend over backwards to try to teach him and help him if I had the time and the luxury of doing that. I think if they're not trying or just resistant to change, I think you're going to spend a lot of time trying to convince them to be different without much to show for your effort. Yes, 100%. And, 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 and oh, man, that was powerful. And, and I think the other thing that, that um, I don't know what your experiences are, but I run into is, especially when we talk about loving our team and, and all that, and we talk about getting people off of it, uh, we equate firing people, uh, getting rid of them, whatever terminology you want to use, as not necessarily loving them. And, and, and truth is, sometimes helping them come to grips with those shortcomings is the most loving thing you can do for them, right? Yeah, I, I think Bill Campbell again. You have the right to be treated respectfully and loved, but you just don't have the, the right to work here, right? Right. And I, 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 I like the other quote Bill Campbell did, who is the, the late Bill Campbell, was probably as interesting a leader as I've ever met before he died a couple years ago. He had this saying that I think we should put up in our offices more frequently. He said that the organization can deem you to be a manager, mm -hmm. but only the people on the team can make you a leader. And I think we forget that sometimes because we too often equate leadership with some sort of hierarchical position. Right. That is that is a truth. That is the truth. Leadership and management are not the same thing. Um, well, Gary, look, I have thoroughly enjoyed this past uh, little over 45 minutes of conversation with you. Um, again, for the listeners, uh, Choose Love, Not Fear, written by Gary Heil and his son, Dr. Ryan Heil. Uh, highly, highly recommend picking up a copy, putting this on your, don't just put it on your bookshelf, read it, digest it, uh, personalize the content in here, then put it on your bookshelf for quick reference. Um, we covered a lot. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you'd like to, uh, like to leave the listeners with? No, you know, I, um, I, uh, you know what, I guess I would. Okay. Um, there's a really interesting leader, and she has been deemed to run the best-run charity in the United States called Give Kids the World in Kissimmee, Florida, outside of Orlando. Pam Landworth is her name. She takes very seriously ill or terminally ill kids and their families and raises money, about $60 million a year she raises, to have families of wish kids and all go through the, the Orlando experience at Disney and, and the like. And Pam used to be the head of education for all of Disney, and she's one of the most remarkable leaders I've ever met. But she has a sign in her office, right? Okay. That says, it's not about me. Mm. And it's the only sign in her office, right? And it, the point of it is, she looks at it every day to remind her that when she goes outside the doors, it isn't about Pam. It's about the kids, about the kids' family, about the staff. I mean, think about a village like this. Think about it like a large, like, one-story hotel with amusements and all in it where 6,000 families a year go through, right, with mm -hmm. very handicapped and terminally ill kids. And they get 2,000, 2,000 
volunteer hours a week mm. of people to come give their time because their mission is so good. Most of this village has been built by Disney employees and others who contributing their time. But 2,000 volunteer hours a week. Think about how you have to lead and how strong your mission has to be to get people to give up their time 2,000 hours at a time. And it's all about creating something that isn't about you and isn't about just internally. But we love each other internally to the point that we can love our guests and the people that come through our gates. I think there is something about her message that it's not about her that we could learn in a world where too often it's about my grades and my performance and my incentives and my rewards and my paycheck. And if we spend a little more time judging our success by the development of the people around us and the customers we serve, I think if I had to leave people with one thing, I think Pam's sign in her office is something I think about often. That is great. That is great. And and so I'm from Northeast Tennessee, and my math might be a little fuzzy on this, but that's 50 full-time employees a week volunteering. That's right. And I had to check my math when I heard it, too, and it's actually a little higher than that. And for me, I sat there and went, boy, just organizing that is, 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 is quite the job. And then I went down there and sat in the village, and I was mesmerized. Mm. There are people who schedule their vacation to come to Kissimmee, Florida, to work in the village for a week or two, and that's their vacation every year because mm. it's their one chance to give back in a world that doesn't give back enough. Amazing. That is outstanding. That is outstanding. And they come back, and they keep coming back. Uh, so you you know that she's uh, you know that she's doing something right. Otherwise, people would do that once and be done. Um, well, Gary, it, it, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just saying, to meet Pam once is, is to have your life changed. Mm. And before you know it, you're going to be contributing some way, volunteering or otherwise. You can't meet her without without her signing you up. <laughs> <laughs> She's that good of a sales lady too, huh? Oh my, oh my lord, she lives it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Gary, this has been a fantastic, uh, you know, past uh, fifty minutes or so here. Uh, I'm sure the listeners have absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, people do rush out and get your book. Uh, but just so we can make it easier for them, where can they find out uh, more about the book and more about you and, and what your son are doing? Oh, well, you can get the book on Amazon, no problem. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you can go to Gary Heil, G-A-R-Y-H-E-I-L dot com. Some of what I'm writing about, thinking about is, is on that website um, or through LinkedIn or otherwise, drop me a line. All that's fine. Ryan is the uh, chief operating officer of the Washington Speakers Bureau in D.C., you can get hold of him through the Washington Speakers Bureau. And uh, he's the smart guy in the relationship. So, <laughs> you know, we look forward to it. I'd love to hear from as many people as possible. Thank you very much for having me today. I really enjoyed the time. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And I will get links to that on there, and I'll get links to the Washington Speakers Bureau uh, on, on the page as well, so in the show notes. 
listeners can just go click on it, go straight to uh, Amazon and, and get a copy of the book and reach out to, to Gary and Ryan and, and uh, leave them some feedback. Uh, and again, I appreciate you being here. It's just been fantastic conversation. Uh, listeners, uh, reach out to me as well, burden.command at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for future guests, if you have any ideas for stories, if you have any ideas for improvements to the show, uh, go ahead and sh- uh, ship them there. Be sure you're sharing the show. Uh, let your friends know of all the great content that you can find on here. I've got some really great guests, uh, just like Gary in past episodes. Um, rate, review, that helps get the show some uh, visibility on the various platforms. I uh, really thank each and every one of you for sticking with me for these past uh, two seasons and now into the third season of the podcast. And with that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wannabet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.